Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltology. Meltology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's Comics Jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and um, today we've got a great guest, um, someone I've actually been talking to about having on the, the podcast, I think, since before the podcast was actually a reality. And um, my good friend, he's been in self-publishing, he's been uh, doing comics, and I know him from about five other different types of things. So uh, I'm just going to introduce him, and we'll probably dig into all of those one at a time, but this is uh, Kiyoshi Nakazawa, also known as Lucky Nakazawa. How are you? Good, good. So um, welcome on, welcome on to the podcast. It's great um, to be here. I'm going to let everybody know that uh, we've, um, we're now doing the podcast as kind of a a traveling podcast and so we have this amazing portable setup that we use and uh, last week we're on location at um at Lindsay way's house and um, depending upon the order of how these play out it, it may not be the last um, podcast that uh that people play in order but um we're taping now actually at uh at my my home my home space my uh la luz de jesus gallery in the very very dark back hidden space um filled with um billy shire's personal art collection it's very secret. I've actually never been in this room, and they frisked me and blindfolded me to get in here. Yeah, Billy came over and he said, uh, "Do you want to see Kiyoshi?" That's what he said. He's uh-huh. like, "Do you want to see Kiyoshi?" I was like, "Yeah, send him back." So, um, in the interest of people um, staying tuned here, we should probably tell everybody who you are. Now, um, when I first met you, I met you when you were at at GR at the magazine at Giant Robot. And you were handling all the ad accounts, and I was at the time running Panic House Entertainment. Yeah, and um, it was great because I'd known Eric, and uh, my ex-wife had actually worked for Eric, and I we I think brought him on his first trip to Japan, and did all the yeah yeah Yeah. I outa. (laughs) That's right. Got to differentiate these days. Um, And um, we took him to all the the design houses in in Tokyo. That's right. Um, In fact. That tour, that might have. Was I working when you guys went on that tour? Yeah, I was. But yeah, I was working a lot from home. Yes, and I would come in about two to three days a week, depending on how close to deadline we were. Yeah. Yes, I was uh, doing the advertising directing for the magazine. Yes. Uh, sometimes people get confused because they know Giant Robot 
mostly through the store locations, right? Which went as far as New York, San Francisco, and mm-hmm. three in L.A. Yep, there was Silver Lake. There were the two on Sautel. That's right. And I actually did not work with the stores. I just worked strictly with the magazine, which was amazing. I worked with Eric Nakamura, Martin Wong, and then I got you know every once in a while I got to see the uh, editors, uh, writers, photographers, mm-hmm. artists, and whatnot. So it was a great experience. Yeah, and I think what was what was great back then, um, what I was doing in in entertainment was with with running Panic House Entertainment was licensing in many cases the the first time films of that nature, especially early early seventies, late sixties exploitation films, is the first time that most people were seeing them. I had seen them on videotapes, clandestine videotapes that I had gotten from friends who lived in Japan and were taping them off like the Toei network, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a um to Japanese television, what HBO might be for American cable television. Mm-hmm. And um because of that it it made perfect sense to select outlets that had such a strong Asian American connection and giant robot was one of those things. But I've always been curious because since you've obviously been doing your own thing for a really long time. And, um, I mean, I know you as a martial artist. Mm -hmm. I know you as, you know, the, the magazine ad director, Mm -hmm. and I know you for your comics Mm -hmm. and for the things that you publish. And, um, well, I've I've been kind of bestowed as like the honorary Asian among my friends. Uh-huh. Um, I'm clearly a Caucasian guy from Boston, Massachusetts, and um, and therefore I had a very different experience, a very different American experience. Mm-hmm. And so I want wanted you to tell us a little bit about, you know, your life and um, where'd you grow up, how did you come to do what you do, and what do you think are your observations about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm what they call a yonsei, which in Japanese means fourth generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a title that you mostly hear amongst Japanese Americans. You don't call, you don't hear Japanese in Japan calling other Japanese yonseis or right. niseis or sanseis. Mm-hmm. It's a term that's sort of caught on uh, with the Japanese Americans and, um, and whatnot. So being fourth generation, that basically means that you might be more Japanese than me. Yeah. Uh, other than the fact of my name. Right. But I grew up with, uh, my mom and dad were both born in Japan, but my dad was actually born in Japan as an American citizen. Right. Um, he grew up there until he was a young boy, and he came back to the States, which were, you know, he was an American citizen. He came back for the first time, mm-hmm. I guess you would say. And uh, I was born in Northern California. I grew up in a very rural coastal town um if you guys are familiar with half moon bay or mavericks surf spot Mm -hmm. i grew up uh in that community small town called el granada and uh i spent yeah my childhood there until i was 18 moved Mm -hmm. to la but uh, i grew up in a community that was predominantly uh either white or or Mm spanish-speaking or uh Portuguese. There was also a Portuguese population. Very similar to actually where I grew up, where yeah. um, it was a pri- primarily, well, everybody was sort of like white Catholic. Yeah. And so there was a lot of white Irish Catholic and there was a lot of um, white Italian Catholic. And in the specific area in Lynn and Salem and, and Peabody being right next door, there was a very large contingency of, of Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my best friends is actually Chinese and Portuguese. His elder king son. He's a, he directs um, stop motion for um, Robot Chicken and oh, cool. did the opening credits for the Lego movies. Great guy. I've known him since since we were in high school. And um, 
so it's funny when I meet people who, who come from communities that it's like, oh, the, the ethnic breakup is this. And you're like, wow, you know, I thought that there's a few areas of the country where things are similar and yet so different. But um, also in Northern California and Southern California, I've noticed this a lot too, and especially in places where they're surfing, that I've noticed in the South, there'll be towns that will be la and something, mm -hmm. or it will be plural. And in Northern California, it will be L, and then that same word, L, mm -hmm. or that same word and singular. That's interesting. I've actually never considered that. Palo Alto, Palos Altos. Yeah. Um, La Mirada, El Mirada. Yeah. There's like a whole bunch of that in California, which gets really confusing. So does that make uh, the North masculine and the Southern feminine? I would or is that is it a plurality issue? It's probably a plurality issue. Yeah. But it's interesting. But I also think that the... Um, a lot of Northern California was settled earlier than Southern California. Mm -hmm. Southern California was um, still contentious land for a lot longer. That's true. Yeah. So the, the the first names went up north, and then of course into New Mexico and and in Northern Arizona. Uh -huh. So you got like Taos is older than Los Angeles, but it's further inland. But we we won't dwell on that. <laughs> the more you know, I know, right? Moment. It's it's, yeah. it's so like ABC. I grew up with you know my my neighbors were mostly for the for all intents and purposes, white yeah, uh, and Spanish speaking mm -hmm. and, or of uh, Mexican heritage and Portuguese heritage. But I spent weekends um, either being taken to a Japanese American church mm -hmm. in Redwood city or taken to San Francisco to visit my grandparents, mm -hmm. uh, which was in little Tokyo, San Francisco. Right. So I was always getting this weekend injection uh, of different languages different types of art and comic books, different types of food, different types of uh, social habits and communities. With the toys in Little Tokyo Absolutely. in San Francisco, Mistress Mechanique, uh, Satellite Store for, um, oh my gosh, there was the store that Orion from Third Eye Blind worked at, which was one of the biggest toy stores for Japanese toys, yeah. maybe the biggest on the West Coast. And now I can't think of the name of it. I actually don't remember the names, but the, my childhood memory of the walking into the stores on a regular basis was is vividly etched in my mind. Kimono My House. Yeah, actually, I you know what's funny? I went to Kimono My House as a teenager after mm -hmm. I actually already moved away um, from uh, Northern California. But growing up, I went to a couple different stores that were in the Little Tokyo Plaza. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say off Sutter. Okay. If I remember correctly. And... I was seeing toys for TV shows and animes that weren't even aired. And it was, a, it was a weird sort of uh, dissonance because yeah. you always understand that everything in Toys R Us or the local market is sort of based on something. Uh, it's right there in front yeah. of you. That it's on television. Right. It, it has, it's, it's a very it's a property thing. that you, you, you're aware of. It's yeah. a, it's a branded toy. Um, and all of a sudden, I was seeing all these things that I just didn't recognize or I only saw in the pictures of, you know, Japanese phone book manga, and uh, which I couldn't read. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then I, 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 at these churches, I was making friends with um, kids my age who were bilingual, who mm -hmm. could read and write and speak Japanese fluently, mm -hmm. as well as English and they were turning me on to the comics they read, the animes they watched, uh, and and whatnot. And so that I think that broadened early on my horizon, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I remember just 
always seeing that stuff on the weekends or whatnot and then going to school and none of my friends knew what I was talking about yeah. or they wouldn't recognize. I would bring my toys to school and no one would recognize them until the um, American release of Shogun Warriors, the yep. giant. The Mattel. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until that that I think p- kids started catching on. And even then they didn't realize that those were based on anything. Right. You know, I don't think they were. It wasn't easily accessible to watch the cartoons. When my friends and I were playing with the Shogun Warriors in the, the mid to late 70s, mm-hmm. um, I remember we had the toys. Mm-hmm. Um, we you'd, you'd ask for them for Christmas, and you never knew which one you were going to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I actually honestly don't think I was familiar enough with what each one was yeah. that I'd have been happy with any of them anyways. Yeah. And um, I remember my friend had um, Great Dragon, mm-hmm. and I had um, Mazinga, mm-hmm. and... I think he got the Godzilla toy that fired the fist, right. which was also Mattel and the same size yeah. and scale as the Shogun Warriors. And then I got Guy King. Uh-huh. And then Force 5 hit American television. And Force 5 was a syndicated show. It was on five nights of the week, and it was a package. So even that show was a package of completely disparate shows. Mm-hmm. And so Monday night would be something like, um, I think it was... Um, D'Artagnan and uh, the Space Cateers, I think, might have been Monday. And then the, um, the Guy King was on Friday, and Mazingo wasn't even part of it. Right. And you had um, all these different giant robot shows, yeah. most of which were going to Guy, but not all of them. Yeah. Um, under this blanket of this American cartoon with new music and new voices right. and stuff. Right. And then we were like, oh, we have these. And like, how come we can't find Poseidon? Right. Like, why don't we know that one? You yeah. know, it's like, it's on TV. We should be able to get that yeah. one. And when you're a kid, you have no idea that the way that the licensing works is mm-hmm. so completely different. I mean, and then it's what we both end up kind of doing for a living. Yeah. You know, years and years, decades later. Right. Yeah. It all, it all those things that affect you at that young age will always come back to haunt you in the best way possible. That's a great place to take a quick break. Okay. <laughs> and um, we're going to take a little uh, break for um, to hear from our sponsors. And um, I want to get in the habit of letting people know that um, that we do review um, the possible advertisers for the program. And if you do want to get in touch with us, you know, please um, shoot a line out to uh, the folks at Meltdown. You can shoot um, an, an email out to uh, my producer, Mason Booker, mason at meltcomics.com. And I'll be happy to uh, work you into, into the program. But first uh, and last, a word from our sponsors. Melt you, the school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. And welcome back to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, we're talking to my friend Lucky Nakazawa, and uh, we're just talking about the impact of toys and, and growing up where he grew up, um, close to Northern California. And um, and now we're going to um, really get into what inspired him to start working in comics, in illustration. And um, you know, as you mentioned, you had been um, familiar with you know boutique publishing um when you were working for for giant robot but had you had an an idea or a concept prior to that 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 might be something that you'd be working around i'm trying to think of what really was the biggest influence and in terms of seeing someone 
who's being successful about it doing their own comics mm-hmm. i always grew up with a huge love for comics whether it was japanese comics which i couldn't read or traditional comics from the big two, which I would get at the liquor store mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I was always drawing them. And everyone who, in my circle of friends who enjoyed comic books, they probably drew probably a little better than me. I remember my brother was always a better artist than me, but no one took it serious enough to continue doing it. Right. And I think in junior high, I was in sixth grade and I was failing out of home ec. And I had a hard time just being a good student and my counselor whose name was James Trum was a really positive influence he he had to speak to me and said okay you just got kicked out of home ec and there's no other alternative class to get the same credit mm-hmm. so you have to come here and you have to do something to my off at my office you have to come here when you'd normally be at home ec and you have to do something what do you like to do and I said I like to draw draw what comic books mm-hmm. okay in the same amount of time you're going to, uh, you should be in home ec, you're going to make a comic. You're going to write it, you're going to draw it, and you're going to make, God, it wasn't a Xerox and it wasn't a ditto machine. It was something in between. Right. A mimeograph? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But uh, it was the closest thing to a Xerox machine. What year was this? I was in sixth grade. So, let's see, I graduated from high school in 89. So that was... Yeah, we're the same age. Oh, man, 89, 88, 87, 86... 84? 1984, yeah. Um, and I, I did it. I made a, su- a really typical um, superhero comic book. And I didn't I didn't draw it like on 11 by 17 paper. Mm-hmm. And I did it mostly drawing everything on 8.5 by 11, copying those, shrinking them down, and pasting them up on a board, and then shrinking that board down and then stapling them together. And so this is like sixth grade. This is pretty sophisticated. No, it was awful. No, but I mean, what's amazing about that is that is that, that method is so close to the old format of making comic books where that um, before they were like, okay, you guys are going to come in, you're going to do these these drawings that are going to fit in this, this mold, that um, that's very close to early printing, early print setup. Yes. And this guy wasn't even an art teacher. No, he knew nothing about art. He just knew that he had to keep me busy mm-hmm. and, and he want, he didn't want to just waste each other's time. He said, right. like, what, what do you, you can't, you're failing out of home ec because you can't focus on it. Right. Show me that you can focus on something productive. Right. What would that be? And I mean, I could actually talk more about him because what he then did was he said, oh, this is really interesting. This is the first time he'd like, he'd done an art project with a student. Mm-hmm. Usually he keeps him busy with other things, a little more academic. Mm-hmm. He... What did he do? Oh, he asked me. He goes like, "Where do, where would you show something like this? What do pe- do you know any comic book artists?" And I said, "No, not really. But there's these really cool conventions in San Francisco called Creation Con, which have comic book artists show up. Mm-hmm. And I also t- I was also really into role playing games at the time. Yep. And, and other than Dungeons and Dragons, it was Champions, yeah. which I, which was Champions, like, villains, and vigilantes, right? right. Yeah, same um, heroes. Yeah. Yep. So he contacted. Hero Games, which made champions, and mm-hmm. said, hey, I've got a sixth grade student who's really into your artists. Mm-hmm. He plays your games, really into artists. Can you just look at his work? Can you just let us drop by and spend 10 minutes to look at his work and just give him a crit? Right. So he, we did that. And I was like a little kid, and I probably, I, if I remember correctly, I, I probably wore a button shirt and a tie. Mm-hmm. And I brought this stupid portfolio full of copies of their art and my comic book. 
and it was awful, but it, it was, you know, it showed it showed a passion for it. Yeah. But it was not good by any stretch of the means. And they were just being very nice, mm-hmm. you know, because someone from a school went through the trouble of doing this. And they gave me a crit, and through that, I got in contact with um, two of their artists, Mark Williams and Mike Witherby. Mike Witherby would later go on and work for Marvel. He was like a real, um, like, 80s, 90s Marvel Comics journeyman, you know, right. sort of... Uh, the Jackson guys. Yeah, he never got to pencil his own comics though. He was always like a journeyman inker. It's like Bob Layton. Maybe like yeah, more yeah. like that. He he was um he was brought into the field. I think if I'm not mistaken, by Joe Rubenstein. So oh, he wow. kind of comes from that angle. Yeah. Um, and so Mike Witherby, who he lived in Redwood City, not mm-hmm. far from me, and uh, I would go visit him with my counselor once every couple months and show him progress on my stuff and mm-hmm. he he was kind of like um because he came from that joe rubenstein and traditional comics books inking he he was the first person who sat me down and said okay look this is what we use we use a a hunt what is it the 102 the, and 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 you know the exact numbers of each nib yeah uh windsor newton series seven number three number four yeah. get you know uh higgins black magic ink you know he said exactly yeah. which supplies to get which paper to use and no one ever explained that to me before. Yeah. And even though it was probably already in How to Draw Comics the Marvel way, in one way, shape, or form, no one ever really said, look, this is what I we all use. You right. Know? He, he really saw comics very, um, or saw, he's still alive. He still, he, he sees comics inking in a very traditional, manneristic way. Yeah. Like, these are the tools you have to use. It's all traditional. And I was taught using a crocodile on a brush, and I'm going to teach you how to use a crocodile on a brush. Right. And... You know, you draw like this. Inking with a brush. Yeah, absolutely. Old school. Absolutely. Yep. And this guy was, um, I was so lucky this guy showed me this stuff at yeah. such a young age. And um, it was a terrible learning curve, but I just, I really fell in love with it. I really fell in love with just finishing drawings with ink. It just never dawned on me that that's how it's done. Right. Um and from that point on, I then, uh, my same counselor then, through a series of connections, got me uh, a, like a crit with Steve Lealoa, yeah, who lived in San Francisco, or who lives in San Francisco. And Steve Lealoa was such a positive influence because I grew up reading that giant size Star Wars comic yeah. that with, he did with Howard Chicken. Yeah. And I loved the inking on that again, yeah. and, and the drawing, of course. But Steve Lealoa gave me um, an afternoon that was super helpful. This is so funny because this is a lot of the same guys that worked with Bill Willingham. Oh, Bill Willingham's great. And Bill was, of course, an illustrator for yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. For absolutely. TSR. And he and Steve were both, Steve was obviously doing monster manual drawings yeah. and, and uh, fiend folio drawings. And these guys come together years later, you know, years after um, Bill was working at Elementals to do Fables, which is the most awarded series of all time. Wow, I'd never, I never. I knew it's it's great series, but I never knew it was the most awards. Yeah, Fables and won more awards than Sandman. Steve Lealoa was doing TSR Fiend Folio work. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was Fiend Folio, but he was doing some of the illustrations. Okay. In various modules and yeah. in Dragon Magazine. Yeah. That then wound up in TSR supplements. Cool. And probably Villains and Vigilantes too. I oh, don't think he was in Gamma World. I think that yeah. was a little too early. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And Steve Lealoa was absolutely helpful. And that was a really, for a young kid, I wasn't even in high school yet. Mm-hmm. 
that was like a really positive experience. And oh, that guy's teacher of the year every year from now until the end of the world. Yeah. I mean, there, people like that were so rare. And most people that you talk to um, and most most of the professionals that I've talked to um, didn't get any type of support until college, if at all. Yeah. And, so that's and, amazing. And, you know, if I could tie this in a little bit. Sure. You asked about my Japanese-American sort of angle and upbringing. And it was really cool to spend time with uh, Steve because of his background mm -hmm. as a Hawaiian-American. Pack Islander, yeah. Right. And um, it never dawned on me when I was young until someone sort of mentioned it. And I reread his name, yeah. Le Aloha. And I said, oh, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know... Don't get me wrong. Like we didn't sit down and say, well, look, this is what's going to happen as an Asian American artist in right. comics. He never said that. But he was just a shining example of someone who rocked and yeah. who did really influential work and um, was very understated. And he, he was a, a humble guy. Mm -hmm. um, later on, Stan Sakai would also be a great example. But uh, we're, maybe we're jumping ahead. But yeah, um, the, all those people when I was young, I'm very thankful for. I think that... I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't meet those people. And they just said, okay, this guy, he's a little spazzy. He's a little unfocused, mm -hmm. but maybe if we just give him a little push in this direction and just sort of challenge him to do extra work, mm -hmm. because essentially a lot of these people were telling me to do work on top of my homework, yeah. which my parents of course would make me do. Right. Um, I wasn't a great student. I wasn't, um, uh, I didn't get past, pre-algebra and math I don't think and mm -hmm. my SAT scores were not that good but as I would do all my homework and I would do everything asked of me in school but I I would then do extra work I would take classes at City College mm -hmm. I would do the assignments that Mike Witherby would give me mm -hmm. and um, when I met Steve you know he would he would look at my work give a crit and he would sort of show how he would do it and he basically said okay well this is what you could do with your work and if I were you, this is what I would do. And I went home and I started doing, he said, you know, he basically said to pick a short story you like and to illustrate it. And I was basically trying to do Ray Bradbury's um, Sound of Thunder. Which is what all the guys at EC Comics are doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. ripping off uh, Ray Bradbury yeah. stories. So there's a great lineage for that. Yeah, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I'll, I'm sure every one of your guests has already said it in one way, shape, or form, but basically I, I realized that the art form that I was passionately in love with, that I couldn't get a enough of every night reading and rereading, um, that it was basically a lot harder oh, yeah. than I ever had imagined. I don't know if I would... I never like to say that because yeah. the love of it always outweighs that when you're... When, you know, the... But the truth is, is it's a... It's a as far as... The amount of work is just tremendous. Yeah. And I had a newfound respect for all these guys that were really breaking themselves, making comic books, and getting paid very little. And think of how many of those guys didn't even get credit. You're right, right. You know, like, and not, I'm not even going to address, you know, the era before we were born. Yeah. But all those guys at Charlton, all those guys at Gold Key, every guy that did anything beyond the lead story and House of Mystery and yeah. Secrets of the Haunted Their House. Their names are taken stuff, off, right? A lot of times they just weren't in there. Like if they didn't sign the front splash page, it didn't, they yeah. didn't get an extra um, title card. And 
it, it does give you a lot of respect, especially for the journeyman guys. And I remember buying stacks of stuff, you know, two and three and four and five dollar pages in 1995, 94 at Comic-Con of, you know, Jim Aparo. Oh, sure. You yeah. know, who to me is amazing. Yeah, outsiders. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, but for me, it was like Phantom Stranger, yeah. you know, and, and all the stuff in the back of um, Adventure and, you know, the kind of the darker stuff that Michael Fleischer was writing where, yeah. you know, the Spectre stories where, you know, the, the Spectre would turn somebody into a log and run them through a, um, you know, a, a saw blade or it turned them into a candle and set them on fire. Like all these really like dark O. Henry type of stories. Right. And, um, and, and Tom Mandrake, you know, who mm-hmm. when in the eighties, when we were reading comics, he, I think replaced Howard Chaikin on, um, no, he didn't replace Howard Chaikin on American Flag. He replaced Tim Truman on Grimjack. Right. And I remember being like, oh, this isn't as good as Tim Truman. Yeah. And then I went back and I was like, oh, Jesus, he has a habit of replacing these guys that are amazing. You yeah. know, like um, my Kaluta on The Shadow. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard... But how do you follow these yeah, guys? I can't. mean, it's like... You become that guy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, you know, you know what? Bad Company wasn't Led Zeppelin, but Bad right. Company's pretty amazing. Yeah. And this guy was kind of like Bad Company. Right. And when I saw the stuff that he did for Warren Publications, uh-huh. I, I, I had a really newfound respect for him, but also for the fact that he could turn out 48 pages a month. Like, he was right. not just doing one title. He'd, he'd work on other stuff. And that's what I learned as well. The more I learned about um, creating comics is that... I used to be very dismissive of run-of-the-mill comics. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that those artists are actually pretty amazing. Yeah. Especially the ones that are always on time. Yep. Reliable and just hit those deadlines. That's the reason why Dan DiCarlo did Archie for decades. Yeah. You know, and and certainly at DC, you know, who was on on Superman forever, you know, it was like Jerry Ordway was on Superman for decades. Yeah. And I, it makes you wonder, you know, did he ever go on vacation? Right. You know, or was he just so good that he could, oh, you know, I'll get ahead of myself. I'll get right. ahead a couple of pages in six months. Yeah. You know, kind of like a marathon runner. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of the, um, the really, um, hardcore grinder guys yeah. are like, but when did you first get published? Let's see. Uh, not counting self-published? No count self-published. I mean, I was making Xerox staple folds in high school. Mm-hmm. And then what was the first thing I got published? Oh, you know, I guess the first thing I'd like to say was my first publication was in World War Three Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And they were, it wasn't actually a comic. It was like propaganda posters I made. And mm-hmm. I guess that was the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, and Peter Cooper sort of made that happen. Uh, and Legend in underground yeah, publishing. I, I, I own for that. I think, gosh, off the top of my head, I'm going to say that's the first thing I could think of. That was my first zine slash comic slash graphic type mm-hmm. publication. Um, so, yeah, I'm very uh, grateful for Peter Cooper for that. Um, he's an amazing artist. Yeah. I first, I think, became aware of both he and Howard Cruz at around the same time Mm -hmm. that um, I wasn't reading a lot of modern underground comics. Most of what we were reading were like the old fabulous furry freak brothers that we'd find in, you know, a friend's comic book pile. Yeah. And the big brothers. Yeah. The big brother stashes. And, um, and then when we started really kind of looking into the stuff that was being published by Fantagraphics 
and um, and some of the other uh, kitchen sink, mm-hmm. these guys' names started to come to the surface because they'd sometimes have little features, little drawings mm-hmm. in the back of the anthologies that we would read. And then they would do those great anthologies that were like, okay, this is for the comic book relief fund, mm-hmm. you know, or um, someone suing um, Dennis Kitchen. So we have sure. to. Sure. Anything you know, goes. Yeah. The... Yeah, exactly. Anything goes, I think, was my first encounter. And it had like Bob Burton and yeah. the Flaming Carrot in the cover. And it had some um, Hernandez Brothers stuff. It yeah. had Peter Cooper. And it, uh-huh. and it had um, it had Howard Cruz and all these other amazing um, underground artists. Those were great. Artists. Three incredible issues. Yeah. Um, Alan Moore's picked. Pictopia or Dispicto? Yep. What was it called? Yeah, it was Alan Donald. Moore. Donald, wait, Alan. Don Moore, Simpson. Don right? Simpson. Yeah. Right. Such a great yeah. short story those guys made. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis Fujitaka or Take or Take and Jan Stranad. Yep, Jan Stranad. Or Jan Jan Stranad. Jan Stranad. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna take another quick break, and um, we'll be right back uh, with my guest uh, Lucky Nakazawa after this brief message from our sponsors. Do you like to binge read your comics? Are you having trouble tracking down all the back issues of your favorite comics? The answer is Comics Fix. Comics Fix is a monthly digital subscription service where you pay a monthly fee and read as much as your heart desires. Go to ComicsFix.com and check it out. The first month is free. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And um, joining us again is Lucky Nakazawa. And we're talking about influences and what an amazing story of of how he's kind of come about um you know from a kid who didn't pay attention in school to uh putting together his own zines and getting published and i think what i'd I'd like to get into now is once you kind of realize that this was something that you were capable of Mm. when did you decide to make the decision to dive in and i mean this has become kind of a really difficult thing for most people in the business Mm -hmm. and especially since you're not necessarily the x-men guy right you know that what you do is really specific and um that makes what you do more of a very personal thing and often involves Mm self-publishing so what do you think what do you think has been the biggest challenge in doing that but when did you first realize that this was okay i'm gonna do this i think i first realized probably i no, i remember it was the sixth grade when i met james trum my counselor and i think making that comic was such a high mm-hmm. that you know i've been chasing the dragon ever since mm-hmm. you know and that's basically what comics and art is as far as art now i think when i moved to la and started studying art I realized that I didn't, I wasn't going to be the guy that fit the mainstream comic book sort of mold. Mm-hmm. Where um, did you go to school? Pasadena Art Center. Right on. Yeah, I graduated spring of 99. Yep. What's up? <laughs> and I I realized that I couldn't draw like those guys. I wasn't going to be an image guy and I wasn't going to be, I, I basically looked at where comics had gone as, as far as like the most popular titles mm-hmm. and I didn't really have a desire to draw like that. Um, and... I was sort of pursuing a more personal approach to making comics and telling stories. So now I think that would be more regular in the curriculum. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you mean to make comics that are more personal? Oh yeah, and yeah. and just at Art Center. Yeah. That, um, that if you did have those kind of 
especially well, at the time you were there, there was still that kind of Bern Hogarth, yeah, you know, hangover of yeah. that, you know, Bern Hogarth taught here. Oh yeah, you he know, was the guy that started SVA. He and, was one of my teachers. Yeah, he was awful. No, I, I take that back. He wasn't. He was totally awful. No. He, he tortured a lot of students. Yeah, I, yeah. I got to see that. I got to witness that firsthand. I, yeah, I, I yeah, sat no. in on many Bern Hogarth classes. I complain about him, and I have all these like stories that I like to tell that you know I make him out to be this villain. Well, he was. He yeah. was a villain. But the truth is, is that everyone else I talked to that went there before me said, "You guys have it easy. Have it easy. Yeah, because no, he, he slapped like, people. Yeah, yeah. They, they all said like, this is um, you have him as a teacher after his third heart attack, and yeah. uh, you know, before those heart attacks, he was a real jerk. He would um, he would pop a blood vessel or come real close to it. I mean, you yeah. talked about you know um, Jan Strenard and, yeah. and about um, Don Simpson, right? Remember, you know, it was like was it Mister Snar for um, Ralph Snart? I mean, he would get so aggravated that you thought that his head, that his eyes were going to shoot out of his head, and everybody yeah. would just get so nervous. And oh yeah, they'd just go head down. And you know, I told a, a story. I I think it was to Lindsay. Um, and Lindsay's husband went to SVA, which is the school that he helped build, and then right. he came in and ended up teaching an art center years later. And um, about him, you know, accosting a student, grabbing him by the hand, and holding it up, and saying, "What are you doing? I'm drawing a hand. What hand? Yeah." It's like. Uh, and grabs his hand. This is a hand. If you're gonna draw a hand, draw this hand. Oh yeah. And everybody in the class, their hands go up and they start drawing hands, no matter what they were doing. Yeah. Because they just did not want to incur his wrath. Yeah, I, I'm a. In hindsight, I like to say that I think people should uh, step up to art bullies like that. I think yeah. that it was hard when you're a student because you yeah. you go in with this preconceived notion that you know this guy's gonna open the open the door for you. Open, he's a gateway guy. Yeah. And especially if you want to do comic books, and here's the guy, Bern Hogarth, who did, you know, worked after Hal Foster on Tarzan. Tarzan yeah. Um, it's just, he gets overinflated. Yeah. And, and it becomes, it's more of a stumbling block than yeah. a, a teacher. Well, like I say, you know, that you were in, you caught that tail end yeah. of that, where that was what was being taught. And now, you know, I go up there three times a year and I do the, um, the crits with the kids and I do the portfolio reviews and yeah. we bring people in for the, for the, you know, our, our group shows. And now there's much more of not even just a relaxed opinion about it, but it's like, Oh, you should, you should do this. Like yeah. stay away from this thing. Like you, you should really do your own thing. Yeah. You should do this non-commercial, yeah. very character type of thing. I, I will say really quickly uh, to touch on your question is that I think what art school did to me, and, and this could be like my own fault is that I allowed a lot of art bullies like Bern Hargaard yeah. and whatnot make me feel really ashamed for trying to do the type of art that I wanted to do. Yeah. And I think I felt ashamed and embarrassed and they made me or that environment, I should say, and with my my mind at the time, created a situation where I wanted to be uh, taken, quote unquote, seriously, yeah. like a serious artist. And that meant sort of um, putting these comic book influences back in a closet. Which is so funny considering they have a gigantic Keith Haring mural right, right across from the library yeah. at the time that you were going there. Right. Right. And um and you're right, you know, I do get I've heard that from quite a few people and a lot from your generation yeah. actually. Yeah. You know, people our age and, and that were in that school at that time that um Ed Fox, who is a fetish photographer uh -huh. and he was taking pictures of ladies' feet. Right. And his photography instructor just could not wrap his head around it. Right. It's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And it's like, well, that's Ed's career now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's what Ed does. He's got three Tashin books out. Right. He's done the, the covers to multiple other Tashin books. Yeah. Um, so him following his particular passion. Yeah. Um, 
and and his particular fetish kind of took him to the top. And a lot of people that I've talked to have gotten that feedback where mm-hmm. they had to kind of fight through mm-hmm. art school to get to the point that they wanted to. Yeah, I think part of getting out of art school and graduating and, and getting into the real world is to shake the training that you paid all that money for, Yeah, which is... Yeah. Sort of silly, but it's just the truth. But you sort of need that whole experience to come full circle. But the crits are good too. The crits are great, and that made me very thick-skinned for the real world. Yeah. Um, if you want to do your own stuff and put it out there, be prepared for the response. Yes. Yeah. To the, your most personal, personal work, where you you know you're spilling your heart out on the page, be prepared for people to say uh, terrible YouTube-style replies and comments to your comics and and this was even before that yeah and that's just the way it is and and um that's what you have to be be prepared for now what are you working on currently currently i am a regular comics column artist for razor cake zine Mm -hmm. which is a non-profit indie punk magazine so i have a uh, comics column in that Mm -hmm. uh i do animation um for my last gigs were with a company which is now defunct called adhd that we worked on Axe Cop, mm-hmm. Major Laser, Goal and the Insatiable. Everybody's talking about Axe Cop today really? on Facebook. I've had so many people talking about Axe Cop on Facebook. Yeah, I was one of the character designers. Oh my gosh. Uh, not the original seasons, right? but the last two seasons yeah. I worked on. So that was sort of my int- – Axe Cop was my intro to animation. And it, it was super difficult at first. I, yeah. I thought it would be, be easy because I looked at the figures and I said, I thought, well, these are – like simplified cartoony versions of what I already do. No mm-hmm. problem. And I swear it was so hard the first couple of months. I, I was, I'd never drawn in an environment where I had people to the left and right of me yeah. who were really good and yeah. trying faster. And, uh, um, I just had to get over all that stuff, that workplace environment. The Nicole brothers are, are one of the subjects of a documentary that, um, called comics are everywhere that, um, a couple artists that we work with were also, in. and that was where I first, they first came to my attention, uh-huh. I think. And um, I'm not sure if they wind up in it because I think they're also in the documentary that um, Super Size Me, um, the director of that, had been putting together about Comic-Con. Right. And so I'm not sure if the Nicole Brothers have made it into the final cut of, yeah. of Neil's documentary. But um, it's just so strange that these things, these lines that connect us all, yeah. that, that connect us in such a weird way. I wonder if also it's a LA thing because of the, the entertainment industry slash. Oh right, comic. we are spoiled because everything is here. Yeah, yeah. everything's also sort of crossbred. Yeah, especially if you're um, doing stuff out of Meltdown, which seems to be like the hub for the entertainment yeah. industry. Media and then comics. You've, you've got you've got comics and you've got Meltdown, you've got art at La Luz. Yeah, you know, and here we are doing something that's that's sponsored by both. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of really strange crossover. Right, if. You know, if I had my druthers, it'd be great to just make a living doing comic books. But yeah. to answer the question, I I don't make a living just doing comic books. I got to yeah. I got to use those skills to do a variety of things. Right. You know, you're also a martial artist. Yeah, I was a bouncer all through. Um, well, not all through. My the end of Art Center, uh, and then I I worked nights after Art Center too, and um, I bounced. I was bouncing up until very like two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I wasn't working like Roadhouse style places. Right. I wasn't. It uh, is LA. It's yeah. Like, yeah. So I was working. And it's like, not even Orange County. Yeah. I was working like you know um, a burlesque club in downtown called uh, the Bordello Bar. Mm-hmm. I worked um, the Derby back in the nineties, yep. which was super popular with the whole Royal Crown swing and, swing. Yeah. Swingers. That movie came out. And yep. That was a that was became very popular. 
bar, you know, the Chateau and Bar Marmont, yep. those, uh, stuff like that. So I got some stories, which I'll be happy to spin for you, you know, if you get a minute, but geez, don't get me started. Right. Uh, that's a whole other show. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. That, that's our award season show. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I want to thank you for having you on. Yes. Yeah, great for, to be here. For being here. And, um, I want to uh, shout out some, um, some websites where people can see your work. Absolutely. I hope I can remember them. Geez, I never update them. My website is luckynakazawa.com, www.l-u-c-k-y-n-a-k-a-z-a-w-a.com. I'm on Twitter at Lucky Nakazawa, L-U-C-K-Y-N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A, and Instagram with the same address. Um, I got a Tumblr out there somewhere. What is that? I think it's www.luckynakazawa.tumblr.com. I think that's how it works. I always forget how the address from Tumblr Yeah, it's either slash or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Lucky Nakazawa again. L-U-C-K-Y-N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A dot T. And there's no U in Tumblr. T-M-B-L-R. Is that how they do it? Is it T-L? Or is it T-U-M-B-L-R? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, again, thanks. And we hope you'll catch up with us again on the next episode of Pod Sequentialism. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.